There's nothing quite like the feeling of being in love. The mere sight of your lover can bring on an adrenaline rush. And every day is like an adventure. No matter what, through thick and thin, this person will always be there for you. Even when it comes to your eccentricities, love can make you go blind to situations you would find morally apprehensible. But how far is too far? Where do you draw the line? For Carla, it was all too good to be true. She was engaged to a sophisticated and handsome professional accountant who had a lot of money. But above all, she loved her fiancé, Paul, very much. To her, he was unique and a wild lover in bed. She would do anything to keep his love, keep him for herself, absolutely anything at all, no matter the price. But this relationship was a bit different than what was normally acceptable. Paul made outlandish demands from Carla for years, and she shockingly agreed to them. You see, one thing that was a real thorn in Paul's side was the fact that Carla wasn't a virgin when they first met when she was 17. In his eyes, it was then Carla's responsibility to make it possible for him to take her little sister's virginity without her knowledge or consent. Carla accepted her fiancé's line of thinking and not only agreed to do this, but also videotaped it as well. This was easy for Carla and she was going to make it happen. But one thing led to another and this sinister plot became even darker. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. You can find a link to today's show notes and sources in the description. Stay up to date with the latest, find behind-the-scenes exclusives, and more by visiting buymeacoffee.com slash Tamsin Lee. I also created an account on Patreon, and if I'm being honest, I... I'm liking the setup on that site a lot better because I can make my posts more organized. Also, if you haven't checked out the Tamsin Lee shop, give it a look. There is a lot to find for everyone. You can find all of these links in the description. Also, if you are viewing this on YouTube, I am sorry for making my videos part one, part twos, and so on, but I'm having to do that right now because of my video editor. On the free version, I can only make 30 minute videos. So until I can get that situated, I'm only going to be able to do parts and I am sorry for that. This is the second episode of what I am calling Couples Who Slay as we count down to Valentine's Day. I am going to put a disclaimer in here as well because what I am going to discuss today is horrible. Just disgusting and horrible. This case has it all, so if you are squeamish or sensitive to topics like rape, do not listen any further. 
Today's case brings us to Ontario, Canada, where in the 1990s, the infamous Ken and Barbie killers took place. Not only was the case very disturbing, but the outcome for Carla brought a lot of media attention to the case. Many were not happy with the outcome, and I could tell you I am one of the people who was not very happy with what happened. If there are some details missing from this episode, feel free to leave what you know in the comments. So let's dive in to today's crazy tale. Carla Homoka worked in a veterinary clinic which provided her with basic knowledge of sedatives used for animals. The only problem she faced was determining how much of the sedative to use to knock her sister out long enough for her fiancé to have his way with her. There is so much wrong with that sentence. Carla decided that using halothane, an anesthetic animal's inhale before surgery, would work best. She did not want to kill her sister. She just wanted to knock Tammy out and give her to Paul for Christmas. She had experience sedating animals before surgery, so this should be okay to use on her sister, right? But she would not have the proper equipment. Carla would have to put the halothane on a cloth and would hold it over Tammy's face. As a loving older sister would, she decided she would make sure Tammy had plenty of air and check her breathing regularly. According to interviews, this plan came to be when Paul started to become attracted to 15-year-old Tammy in July 1990. Carla hatched a plan to help Paul drug her sister as she saw it was an opportunity to minimize risks, take control, and keep it all in the family. On December 23, 1990, Carla and Paul planned the big day for Tammy. Paul had a brand new camcorder that he used to take videos of the Homoka clan, Mr. and Mrs. Homoka, Carla, Tammy, and Lori, as well as the Christmas decorations in their house. Later that evening, Paul gave Tammy drinks, all of which were laced with the sedative. With the help of alcohol, Tammy was out cold on the couch in no time. As soon as everyone in the house was asleep, Carla and Paul started their evil plan. Paul held the camera on Tammy while he raped her, leaving Carla with the task of keeping the rag soaked in the sedative on her face. But soon, Paul ordered Carla to start making sexual advances on her unconscious sister. Then Tammy threw up. She had eaten before the couple had given her the tranquilizer, which caused this reaction. Carla held her sister upside down to try to clear her throat, as they do to animals in the veterinary clinic. But Tammy still choked to death. Paul and Carla's attempts to revive Tammy were unsuccessful. So they did the only thing they could think of. They dressed her, hid the sedatives and the camera, did the laundry, moved Tammy into her basement bedroom, and then called an ambulance. Carla's parents didn't even know there was something wrong until they heard the ambulance pull up to the house. A few hours later, on December 24, 1990, Tammy was pronounced dead at St. Catherine's General Hospital without regaining consciousness. Paul told authorities how he had failed at his attempts to revive the 15-year-old. 
Despite Tammy having a chemical burn on her face, her death was ruled an accident. No more questions were asked. No one looked into the matter any further. But still, this event put Paul and Carla in quite a predicament. Because he didn't really get what he wanted. And because Paul wasn't happy, Carla needed to make him happy. The only thing logical to her was to find him a replacement. Carla was obsessed with making sure Paul was happy. She was so afraid that she would lose this exciting man who walked into her life. It became very natural for her to either do something to excite him or find another person for him to get excited about if he ever became bored or distracted in their relationship. After the tragic ending of their last attempt with Tammy, Paul berated Carla for causing her death and was very annoyed by the fact that Tammy wasn't there for his sexual pleasure. It was only logical to Carla to find a replacement. Obviously, it had to be someone young and a virgin. Actually, Carla knew just the right person who looked a lot like Tammy. A girl who was only identified as Jane Doe. She would present Jane as a wedding gift to Paul. Carla had met Jane two years prior at a pet store and invited the now 15-year-old to her house on June 7, 1991. Jane looked up to Carla as a role model. She was a beautiful woman, so when she was invited to her home, she gratefully accepted. Carla took Jane to dinner, spending hours together talking and supplying her with sweet alcoholic drinks laced with the same sedative she used on her sister. Soon, Jane passed out into a deep sleep. When Jane was sound asleep, Carla called Paul over, telling him she had a surprise. Once Paul arrived, he was thrilled to see how much Jane resembled Tammy. However, he was a bit worried that Carla used the same sedative on Jane. Carla told him that it was fine. She was in control of the situation this time. The couple then undressed her. Paul videotaped Carla as she made advances on the girl before he took her virginity. With that part out of the way, and he captured all of this on videotape, he moved onto his favorite activity, sodomizing the victim in the most brutal way. When he was done, Carla had to clean the blood off the girl and put her to bed. The next morning, Jane was feeling very sick to her stomach and obviously extremely sore. She also met Paul for what she believed was the first time because she had no idea what happened to her the night before. Paul was very happy, ecstatic even, for the gift Carla gave him. He was pretty amazed by the things she would do for him, but he couldn't help that he was having second thoughts about marrying her. She was getting kind of old for his taste. He liked young women who were virgins, and Carla was already 21 years old. Even though he was having second thoughts about the wedding, he still went through with it. 
When it came to their wedding, it had to be the biggest, most lavish, most unforgettable wedding that any of their guests ever attended. They pulled out all the stops, from the historic church in Niagara-on-the-Lake with white horses and carriage, champagne, and a sit-down dinner for 150 guests where the main course was veal-stuffed pheasant at Queen's Landing. Every detail about the wedding was under Paul's control. He controlled Carla's $2,000 wedding dress and her hairstyle. The menu was his decision. Even the vows were up to him. With Carla's vow stating love, honor, and obey. Also, he made the minister pronounce them as man and wife, not husband and wife. Because obviously, if it was husband and wife, then they would be equal. The wedding wasn't just this grand blowout that was meant to celebrate their love and make memories. Paul actually viewed it as a great business opportunity. He expected his guests to donate money and gifts that were on the same grand scale as their wedding. So all of those in attendance, their gifts and money had to be on par with how much he was spending on the wedding which is astronomical. But Paul wasn't always this domineering, repugnant character. He was actually quite different in his youth. Paul Bernardo was born into a peculiar family. Marilyn, his mother, was adopted in childhood by the wealthy Toronto lawyer Gerald Eastman and his wife Elizabeth. Marilyn was raised in a respectable household. She would go on to marry Kenneth Bernardo, who was the son of an Italian immigrant. His father operated a successful marble and tile business. However, he was abusive toward his wife and children. Kenneth decided to become an accountant instead of following in his father's footsteps. Marilyn would marry Kenneth Bernardo in 1960. She originally intended to marry another man, but her father did not approve of him because he did not have the education Gerald Eastman demanded in a son-in-law. Kenneth and Marilyn would settle down in a middle-class neighborhood in Scarborough, Toronto. Married life did not go well for Paul's parents as Kenneth allegedly abused his wife. After having two children with Kenneth, Marilyn found herself back in the arms of the man her father disapproved of. This is how Paul Bernardo was conceived. Kenneth did not appear too bothered by this and actually had his name listed on the baby's birth certificate. Probably one of the reasons Kenneth was seemingly open-minded about his wife's infidelity was due to him going through his own problems as well. He had fondled a young girl and went to court for it. He was also a peeping Tom, going around the neighborhood at night to look at young women through their windows. Worse yet, he started sexually abusing his own daughter in front of other family members and would eventually be charged with crimes involving voyeurism and pedophilia. As time went on, Marilyn became severely depressed. She stopped taking care of the home and her children, withdrawing into herself and eventually hiding out in the basement. 
The children definitely felt the effects of their mother's mental and emotional turmoil. Paul seemed to have escaped the unpleasant experiences that his older siblings endured. Despite coming from a dysfunctional family, he presented himself as a well-adjusted child. Those who knew him at this young age described him as a happy child who was always smiling. He was well-mannered, did well in school, and was very sweet. Paul was also an avid member of the Boy Scouts. As he grew older, he became more involved in scouting and would work as a counselor during the summers. He was one of the most popular counselors with children as they loved him and appeared to enjoy being with him. Teenaged girls also seemed to adore him with his angelic looks and his shy demeanor. Paul was intelligent, worked hard to keep good grades in school, and held numerous after-school jobs. He was determined to make something of himself. Many pegged him to have a great future as a businessman, but no one really knew what was actually beneath that charming exterior. He soon started to develop pyromaniac inclinations and often had dark sexual fantasies. One of the most notable is that he would create a virgin farm where he would breed virgin girls to rape. In 1981, when Paul was 16, he got into an argument with his mother. Marilyn then told him that Kenneth was not his real father and he was the result of an extramarital affair. This had a negative effect on Paul. After this, he would call his mother a slut and a whore. His mother would retort back, calling him a bastard from hell. Due to his mother's infidelity and his father's sexual perversions, Paul began hating his parents. His attitude toward women dramatically changed as well. One of his first girlfriends left him for one of his friends. To get back at her, he set fire to all of her belongings that he had access to. Paul attended Sir Wilfrid Laurier Collegiate Institute. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but I know it's most likely French. I'm usually pretty good at figuring out French things since I'm from Louisiana, but I'm pretty sure I messed that pronunciation up. So he went there before attending the University of Toronto Scarborough in 1982. In the early 1980s, he and a friend were recruited into Amway, which is a multi-level marketing company that sells health, beauty, and home care products. Which I found this part interesting because on one of my other episodes for Nexium, Keith Raniere actually was a part of Amway, I believe. The sales culture here deeply affected Paul and was influenced by the new things he learned from the people who recruited him. He and his college friends would practice pickup techniques on women in bars, which proved to be very effective. His sexual fantasies developed even darker by the time he started attending the University of Toronto. Paul would also find enjoyment in humiliating his dates in public. He also preferred forceful anal sex with his partners. 
His relationships would become violent and unstable as he would threaten to kill his partners if they told anyone of the abuse. By 1986, Paul was served two restraining orders by two women after he made obscene phone calls. Due to his appetite for toys, clothes, and money, Paul needed another job to support himself. While still in college, Paul and one of his friends began smuggling cigarettes across the U.S.-Canada border. But this wasn't enough. He began searching for the ultimate scam in which he would make mass amounts of money. After graduating from college, Paul got a job as a junior accountant at Price Waterhouse. All of his girlfriends who were tired of being tied up and beaten had left him. But it wasn't long until he met the girl of his dreams, Carla Homolka. Almost immediately after meeting, Carla and Paul became sexually obsessed with each other. Unlike the other girls he had been with, Carla actually encouraged his perverse sexual behavior. According to Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams, Carla would beg for Paul while handcuffed. He would even ask her what she thought of him being a rapist. She stated she thought it would be cool. So he then started his raping career. Between 1987 and 1990, Paul started committing increasingly vicious serial rapes in and around Scarborough. Most of the victims he attacked, he had stalked as they got off buses late at night. In 1987, Paul Bernardo became known as the Scarborough Rapist. The pattern was almost always the same. He would stalk the victim as they got off the bus late at night. He would grab the woman from behind and pull her to the ground. He would talk to her the entire time as he forced anal sex and fellatio on the victim. He would then let them go. By 1989, the number of sexual assaults climbed to 11. Authorities were at a loss as to who could have been doing this, but they were able to collect a lot of physical evidence to help determine if they had the right suspect. Police felt they also had a good composite sketch of the culprit. While authorities had this sketch in their possession, they only shared it with other officers in the region. They did not share it with the public for a long time. The entire time this was happening, Carla knew every detail. She knew what Paul was doing and actively encouraged it. One of the victims told authorities that she remembered seeing a woman with the rapist who had a video camera in her hand. But authorities discredited her statement chalking it up to hysteria. His first known or reported rape from this time was on May 4th, 1987, when he followed a 21-year-old woman home, attacking her in front of her parents' house. Just 10 days later, his next victim would be a 19-year-old woman whom he attacked in her parents' backyard. The list of attacks continues with failed attempts almost being caught, but unfortunately, most of these attacks were successful, with some of the girls being as young as 15. 
Detective Constable Steve Irwin of Toronto's Metropolitan Police was deeply involved in the Scarborough Rapist case. The victims had a lot of similarities in their stories, so authorities were certain they were dealing with one man committing these crimes. All the victims described a well-groomed young man who had good teeth and did not smell bad. They stated he talked the whole time he was assaulting them and wanted to hear specific things. Just before Christmas in 1987, a victim was able to give a better description of the man, stating that he was good-looking, about six feet tall, clean-shaven, and had no tattoos. The composite sketch of the attacker had the exact likeness of Paul Bernardo, but police never published the photo for the public's help. One of Paul's ex-girlfriends had also gone to authorities several times about Paul due to his brutal rape, physical abuse, and threats to cause her bodily harm. A report was filed, but nothing came of it. Some coincidences tied Paul to the Scarborough rapist, as it was reported the attacker drove a white Capri, and so did Paul. He also lived in the vicinity of where these attacks were happening, but still, no one looked at him. It wasn't until May 1990 that authorities decided to finally publish the composite sketch of the Scarborough rapist. The picture plus a reward of $150,000 caused a flood of tips to come in. By this time, Paul wasn't working at Price Waterhouse anymore. He was living entirely off of his cigarette smuggling income. However, his former colleagues saw the newspaper picture and were astonished by how much the image resembled Paul. One would eventually call authorities and report that the picture looked a lot like Paul Bernardo. However, police were swamped with similar calls and did not have the manpower to follow up on all of the tips. Detective Irwin took all the physical evidence gathered from the victims and sent it to the forensic laboratory. From the semen samples, they were able to determine him to be in the 12.8% of the male population. By this time, many of Paul's acquaintances had contacted authorities about him. So Irwin decided to go talk to Paul Bernardo. Paul did not look like someone who would be a serial rapist. But Irwin still collected blood, saliva, and a hair sample from him during their meeting. These samples were given to the forensic lab, along with 230 samples from other suspects. Of the 230 samples, five samples matched that of the serial rapist. And Paul was one of them. The five samples were resubmitted for additional testing in April 1992. But the Scarborough rapist mysteriously ended his reign. As the attacks had seemingly stopped, the case was no longer a priority. So the efforts to find the Scarborough rapist came to a standstill. Carla and Paul resided on Bayview in St. Catharines. He was completely living off of his income from smuggling cigarettes across the border. And because of this career, he needed stolen license plates as he frequently crossed the U.S.-Canada border. Due to this need for stolen license plates, he happened across his next victim, Leslie Maffey. Leslie was described as a troubled 14-year-old. She was strong-willed and independent, 
ignored her curfew, engaged in promiscuous sex, skipped school, and would shoplift. Her parents would respond to her rule-breaking behavior with tough love. This was especially true on June 15, 1991. Leslie Maffey had been locked out of her house when she missed curfew after attending a friend's wake. At 2 a.m., Paul Bernardo was in the Burlington area to steal license plates when he noticed the teenager locked out of her home. He then left his car and approached the girl, stating that he wanted to break into one of her neighbor's houses. She didn't seem too concerned about it and asked if Paul had any cigarettes. He then led her to his car. Some reports make it seem as if she willingly went to his car, while others report that Leslie was forced to go with him to his car at knife point, where he blindfolded the 14-year-old and forced her into the car. He drove her to Port Dalhousie and informed Carla that he had a new victim. Carla was upset that Paul had used their best champagne glasses to entertain their victim. But her anger soon diminished, and she became the obedient wife Paul demanded her to be. The entire brutal attack on Leslie was videotaped. Paul gave Carla detailed instructions on how to make love to Leslie. He voiced his commands as if he were a director of a blockbuster film. I think the creepiest part is that they were listening to pop music as if they were all having an innocent party. After Carla finished her part, it was Paul's turn. He could be heard on the tape telling Leslie, You're doing a good job, Leslie. A damned good job. The next two hours are going to determine what I do to you. Right now, you're scoring perfect. The assault escalated with Paul sodomizing her with such force. It caused Leslie to scream in pain and beg for him to stop. Leslie stated that her blindfold was slipping, which worried her attackers, because then she could probably identify them if they let her go. So, they killed her. Who killed her, I think, is more or less still up for debate, as Paul says Carla fed her a lethal dose of the sedative she used on her sister, while Carla says Paul strangled the girl. Carla's family ate dinner at their house while Leslie's lifeless body was in the basement. After their dinner party, Paul and Leslie got to work dismembering Leslie's body with a circular saw and encasing each part of her remains in cement. The couple made numerous trips to dump the cement blocks 11 miles away in Lake Gibson. One of the blocks weighed 200 pounds and was left lying near the shore. On June 29, 1991, a man and his wife were canoeing on Lake Gibson when they made an odd discovery. They came across a concrete block with what appeared to be animal flesh encased inside. The occurrence was so strange that the man decided to go back to the spot with the help of a fisherman and pull the concrete block out of the water to inspect it. Inside, they found the calf and foot of a young woman. Authorities rushed to the scene where they found 
five concrete blocks in total that had been dumped in the shallow water. They theorized that whoever dumped these concrete blocks was not familiar with the area because if they had dumped the blocks over the bridge where the water was deeper, they would most likely have never been found. Leslie's distinctive braces provided the clues authorities needed to identify her. Paul started to become bored as he had not received the entertainment he craved in a while. So Carla decided to call Jane back to her home. But she was a far cry from what Paul wanted because she would not consent to Paul having intercourse with her. She believed she was still a virgin, not knowing what happened that night. Instead, she would only agree to oral sex. She would later tell her writing instructor about Paul, and in turn, the instructor would tell Jane's mother. This put a damper on Paul and Carla's opportunities. But still, one night, things seemingly got out of hand again with the sedative because Jane vomited and stopped breathing for a while. This scared Paul and Carla to no end, and they even called an ambulance for her. When they were able to resuscitate her, the ambulance was called off. Paul started to become annoyed with his wife and questioned her competence with using the drug. Carla became frantic and desperate to do something to put romance back into their relationship. For a while, they had another girl willing to satisfy their needs. But eventually, this girl would move back to Youngstown, Ohio. This left the couple with that itch they couldn't scratch, fueling the tension in their marriage. A tension that was just too unbearable for Carla. Terry Anderson was a 14-year-old girl who went missing on November 30th, 1991. Her body would not be found until six months later in the water at Port Dalhousie. The medical examiner who performed her autopsy stated that they saw no evidence of foul play. But it would have been difficult to determine this considering that the body was in the water for six months. Unfortunately, the coroner ruled Terry's death was by drowning probably as a result of drinking beer and taking LSD. This ruling was controversial for many, especially with the finding of Leslie Maffey. It is still unknown whether Terry was another victim of Carla and Paul's. After school on April 16, 1992, Kristen French was walking home. Paul and Kristen were in the area searching for their next victim when they spotted the 15-year-old girl by Holy Cross Secondary School. They pulled into the parking lot of Grace Lutheran Church, where Carla got out of the vehicle with a map, pretending to need directions. When Kristen looked at the map to help, Paul attacked her from behind, forcing the girl into the front seat of the car at knife point. Carla subdued Kristen from the back seat by pulling her hair. As Kristen always took the same route home after school and failed to arrive home, her parents immediately notified authorities. The Niagara Regional Police Service assembled a team and searched Kristen's after-school route. 
where they found several witnesses who had seen the abduction from different locations. Kristen's shoe was also recovered from the parking lot. From the very beginning, it was understood that Kristen would have to die. She had seen their faces, could clearly identify them, and seen where they lived. But this was not something they were going to let Kristen know. She was bigger than Carla, and was quite a bit stronger than her also. Instead, they never let her know what they had planned. Kristen believed that if she cooperated with them and did everything they demanded from her, she would be able to go free. So, in an attempt to survive, she would do the most humiliating, demoralizing, and torturous requests that these sick individuals wanted from her. It was Easter weekend when Kristen was abducted, and the entire time, Paul and Carla videotaped themselves torturing and sodomizing Kristen as they forced her to drink excessive amounts of alcohol and submit to Paul. The indecency this girl was shown just became worse and worse. The more Kristen cooperated with her captors, the more sadistic Paul became. One such instance comes from videotaped evidence. Paul stated, I'm gonna piss on you, okay? Then I'm going to shit on you. Kristen didn't move, didn't even flinch when he slapped her in the face with his penis. He continued, don't worry, I won't piss in your face, before standing and urinating on her. Then he squatted over her face and tried to defecate on her, but wasn't able to. He would then tell her, you're a fucking piece of shit, but I like you. You look good covered in piss. Kristen suffered these indignities for a day or two before Paul and Carla murdered her. Everything. But her murder was caught on film. Carla claims that Paul strangled Kristen for seven minutes while she watched. Paul said Carla beat her with a rubber mallet because she tried to escape and was strangled with a noose around her neck, which was secured to a hope chest. After Kristen died, Paul and Carla went to Easter dinner with Carla's family. Kristen French's naked body was found in a ditch in Burlington, which is about 45 minutes away, on April 30th, 1992. She was washed, and her hair had been cut off. Because she was not dismembered like Leslie, authorities concluded that the murders were not connected. Authorities centered their investigation in the Niagara Falls area because Paul and Carla were living and murdering in St. Catharines. These two places are extremely close to each other, as well as very close to the border. Superintendent Vince Bevan was put in charge of the case when Leslie Maffey was found. Once Kristen French's body was discovered, the government formed the Green Ribbon Task Force. A base of operations and hotlines were set up just outside of St. Catharines, and forensic experts of the American FBI advised the task force. A witness who saw Kristen French's abduction 
told authorities she remembered seeing a struggle going on in a car at the scene. However, the witness was not familiar with various makes of cars and thought the vehicle was maybe a Camaro. So Bevan focused his efforts on tracking the ownership of all the Camaros in the region. Paul's name would resurface in this case because of the many tips officers received. Two officers paid Paul a visit at his Bayview home, where he was very gracious and polite during their interview. He even openly admitted that he was a suspect in the Scarborough rapes because of his facial similarities to the composite sketch. The officers noted how clean-cut and good-looking Paul was. He was intelligent and cooperative, and his home was very clean and orderly. Authorities also took note that he drove a Nissan, which looked nothing like a Camaro. Still, the two officers tried to contact Irwin in Toronto to ask about the results of the Scarborough rapist. Irwin responded to their inquiry eight days later, stating that Paul's blood and saliva samples had not been done. So technically, he was never cleared as a suspect. Irwin then sent the task force some of the information they had. However, he did not send the interviews with friends of Paul, who tipped authorities off about him, a woman's report that Paul had been stalking her, and the police reports filed by Paul's ex-girlfriend. Because Irwin neglected to send these reports, Paul was not pursued as a suspect. It would not be until February 1993 that the forensic lab in Toronto finally got around to analyzing Paul's blood samples. The tests proved conclusively that he had raped the three victims from which they had semen samples. Paul Bernardo was then placed under surveillance by Irwin. He then learned that Paul had just been charged with assault in St. Catharines, filed by his wife. During the summer of 1982, Paul started using Carla as a punching bag. Even though Paul demanded some pretty insane things from his wife, apparently physically abusing her was not one that she was going to tolerate. She still stayed with him even though she had two black eyes and serious bruises. But her parents eventually intervened in early January 1993 when they persuaded their daughter to seek refuge in the home of one of her sister Lori's friends, whose husband was a Toronto cop. The Niagara police were eventually brought in and took Carla to the hospital. This occurred before authorities had the forensic evidence to convict Paul as the Scarborough rapist. By early February, the Toronto police and the Green Ribbon Task Force wanted to interview Carla. They also wanted to fingerprint her and question her about a Mickey Mouse watch in her possession that was very similar to one belonging to Kristen French. Several Toronto detectives interviewed Carla for about five hours. Just by the questions authorities were asking, it wasn't hard for Carla to figure out that they pieced together the Scarborough rapes with the recent murders in St. Catharines. She became very nervous, and apparently she told her uncle that Paul was the serial rapist and that he had killed the two teenagers. 
Next, Carla got herself a really good lawyer, one that she had met while working as a veterinary assistant named George Walker. Carla would start to paint a picture of the marriage she had with Paul, making herself seem as though she were a victim of her husband's perverse sexual desires. But George Walker would soon realize that Carla was not who she was claiming to be. He did not know exactly what her role was at the beginning of all of this, but during negotiations and some seeking immunity, this case was about to become a lot crazier. Paul was arrested on February 17, 1993 for the rapes and murders. Carla was shocked and afraid by this and would begin to alleviate these feelings with painkillers and alcohol. Authorities executed the search warrants for Paul and Carla's house on February 19th, and they found a lot of incriminating evidence. Among some of these items included a handwritten description of every one of the Scarborough rapes, and an extensive library of books and videos on sexual deviation, pornography, and serial killers. They would also find a home video that indicated that there had been more than one of these victims in the home, showing Carla performing sexual acts with two other women. On May 14th, George Walker and Murray Siegel, who is a plea bargain specialist for the Attorney General, discussed the deal for Carla. She would get 12 years in prison for two counts of manslaughter, but the sentences would be served concurrently and she would be eligible for parole in a little over three years, with good behavior. The government even agreed to contact the parole board on Carla's behalf, underscoring the importance of Carla's testimony against Paul. Meanwhile, Murray Siegel would try his best to arrange for Carla to serve out her sentence in a psychiatric hospital, instead of serving in prison. Carla's trial was very short, and she waived her right to a preliminary hearing. She was arraigned on May 18th. In exchange for this leniency in her sentencing, Carla agreed to tell the truth about her involvement in the crimes and everything she knew about them. By early March, Carla checked into a psychiatric hospital for assessment where she was given heavy doses of drugs. She would insist that she be given larger doses because she was working up the nerve to write an important letter to her parents and sister. It read, Dear Mom, Dad, and Lori, This is the hardest letter I've ever had to write, and you'll probably all hate me once you read it. I've kept this inside myself for so long, and I just can't lie to you anymore. Both Paul and I are responsible for Tammy's death. Paul was in love with her and wanted to have sex with her. He wanted me to help him. He wanted me to get sleeping pills from work to drug her with. He threatened me and physically and emotionally abused me when I refused. No words I can say can make you understand what he put me through. So stupidly, I agreed to do as he said. 
but something, maybe the combination of drugs and the food she ate that night caused her to vomit. I tried so hard to save her. I am so sorry. But no words I can say can bring her back. I would gladly give my life for hers. I don't expect you to ever forgive me, for I will never forgive myself. Carla XOXO There was a publication ban imposed on Carla's preliminary inquiries with the courts, citing the need to protect Paul Bernardo's right to a fair trial. This in itself was highly controversial as some were all for it, while Paul's lawyers argued that the damage was already done when the media outlets claimed Carla to be one of his victims. Others stated that the rumors could prove more damaging than the actual evidence. But still, they were in Niagara Falls, with the border right there, and people could easily get a copy of a New York publication. And these newspapers were smuggled out of America. Also, the internet pretty much nullified this ban. On June 28, 1993, droves of media outlets flocked to Carla's trial. The psychiatric report helped in the plea bargain deal as Dr. Malcolm concluded that Carla knew what was happening, but she felt totally helpless and unable to act in her own defense or in anyone else's defense. She was, in my opinion, paralyzed with fear and in that state became obedient and self-serving. The defense expected there to be a public outcry over the plea bargain Carla received, and oh, was there a backlash. But Murray Siegel prepared a statement defending the deal with this. Why not a greater penalty in light of the horrendous facts? Without her, the true state of affairs might never be known. A guilty plea is the traditional hallmark of remorse. Her age her lack of criminal record, the abuse, and the influence of her husband, and her somewhat secondary role were factors. She's unlikely to re-offend. After the trial and receiving the agreed-upon sentence, Carla prepared herself for the trial of her husband. Paul Bernardo's trial was delayed for two years after his arrest. One of these reasons was because Ken Murray... Paul's first lawyer, was placed in a difficult ethical situation. Paul had given Murray the videotapes of his and Carla's exploits because he thought in doing this, they would never be seen by prosecutors. But prosecutors already knew about the tapes because of Carla and would ultimately wiretap Murray's conversations with Paul. Eventually, the pressure on Murray started to increase until he just handed the tapes over and withdrew from the case. Due to this, defense lawyer John Rosen was assigned to Paul's case and subsequently delayed the case by one year. This action also left many Canadians criticizing Carla's plea deal as it was incriminating evidence that should have been used against her. Paul's trial started in May 1995, with the videotapes used as the most important pieces of evidence. His charges included two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, two counts of forcible confinement, 
two counts of kidnapping, and one count of performing an indignity on a human body. Prosecutor Ray Houlihan opened the trial with a full-day story of Carla's life as a victim of the dominating sadist who was a brainwashed, frightened accomplice to the most degrading criminal acts. He also began with a segment of the videotape of Carla naked masturbating with the camera focused on her vagina. Many in the courtroom were shocked to see Carla in this compromising position. I doubt they were even prepared to see video evidence, much less a full-on porno playing in a courtroom. Houlihan's reason for showing the court this was so he could explain that the dialogue in the videos was scripted by Paul and was a good example of how he forced his will on Carla. More tapes were shown to the jury of Jane, Leslie, and Kristen, providing indisputable evidence of Paul's sexual depravity. Carla was then called to the stand to elaborate on the videos the jurors just watched. She described her relationship with Paul and the escalating theme of sexual degradation, similar to what Paul had with his previous girlfriends. She described how he made her wear a dog's choke collar, inserted a wine bottle into her vagina, and almost strangled her to death with a wire cord. Carla further elaborated that Paul told her she was nothing without him and would call her names like bitch, slut, and cunt. The defense took the stage with John Rosen attacking Carla's credibility. He wanted to show the jury that she was not the victim she was trying to desperately portray herself as, and that she was in fact a willing participant in the couple's rape and murder spree. If Rosen was successful at anything, it was showing Carla to be morally emotionless and had no remorse for her part in any of these crimes. One such defining instance was when Kristen's murder had to be committed by a particular time so the couple could spend Easter dinner with Carla's parents. After Kristen was strangled, Carla immediately left the room to fix her hair. Everyone soon realized Carla had carefully manipulated the circumstances of her cooperation with the government to negotiate one of the worst deals the Canadian government had ever made with a criminal witness. But the deal Carla made wasn't of big concern at this moment, as the jury still had to deal with the conviction of Paul. Paul Bernardo was convicted on September 1st, 1995, on all the charges against him, with the kidnappings, rapes, and murders. Paul would also face trials in the death of Carla's sister, Tammy Homolka, and the serial rapes in Scarborough. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole for at least 25 years. He was also designated as a dangerous offender, making it unlikely that he would ever be released. While serving his sentence in the segregation unit of Kingston Penitentiary for his own safety, Paul was still attacked and harassed by others. He even received a punch to the face by another inmate while returning from the showers in 1996. 
In June 1999, five convicts tried to storm his segregation range and a riot squad had to use gas to disperse them. Even after Paul's conviction, the Ken and Barbie killers continued to dominate the news. And their story continued to play out for all to see. The number one story was the prosecution's deal with Carla Homoka. The public was more than angry that she was given a 12-year prison sentence and referred to the plea as a deal with the devil. While locked away in prison, Paul and Carla continued to accuse each other of murdering Lizzie Mahaffey and Kristen French. In 2000, Paul prepared for his appeal while Carla was making plans for her parole in 2001. But her actions while the crimes took place came under fire, with many referring back to the videotaped evidence. One of the most profound statements was that while Leslie was being attacked in another part of the house, Carla sat in her bedroom, reading and drifting off to sleep. This further showed to many that she never had a conscience and never cared for anyone except herself and Paul. Paul Bernardo started his appeal in February 2000 with his team accusing Justice Patrick Lesage of evidentiary and procedural mistakes during the 1995 first-degree murder trial of Leslie Maffey and Kristen French. The appeal also went after Carla's plea bargain, stating that Lesage failed to instruct the jury that the fact the Crown had agreed to accept her guilty pleas to manslaughter did not in any way prevent the jury from being left in doubt as to whether it was Carla Homoka who had intentionally killed the two girls. They furthered that it was Carla who killed the girls alone and Paul should be guilty of nothing more than manslaughter. However, the Crown responded that Carla's testimony was not essential to a conviction for murder because of the disturbing videos. They furthered that the evidence from the videotapes showed Paul's attitude toward his victims and that he not only brutally degraded them, but also continually demanded they thank him and ask for more. The statement read, Any reasonable person who had seen the videotapes would find it impossible to believe that Carla Homoka would do anything to his victims without his permission. The video footage demonstrates that Bernardo remained in control at all material times and was the dominant participant in the murders. Nevertheless, the defense argued for manslaughter on the theory Bernardo twice suffered the great misfortune that the minute his back was turned, Homoka, to his surprise, killed their captive. Any suggestion that Homoka could have killed the girls of her own volition when considered against the video footage and the relationship depicted therein is incredible. In any event, the prosecution stated that regardless, no matter what, Paul was guilty of first-degree murder, providing the sentiment that Carla would not do anything Paul did not tell her to do. Really, it became a huge mess as everyone tried to determine who was the mastermind behind the girls' slayings. Was it Paul Bernardo's idea, or was it actually Carla Homoka's? 
and Ontario Appeals Court rejected Paul Bernardo's bid for a new trial on March 27, 2000. With the panel of three justices only taking 15 minutes to make their decision, after hearing four hours of arguments by Paul's lawyers, lawyers for Mahaffey and French families stated that the decision blocks any future appeals from Paul. Again, the videotapes come into question regarding Carla's plea deal. Justice Michael Moldaver stated that it was clear Paul and Carla were both participants in the murders in some way, and continued that if the tapes had been found before Carla's deal, she would have been found a first-degree murder. Paul's former lawyer, Ken Murray, was brought to trial on charges of obstructing justice in April 2000 for hiding the videotapes. Murray stated he had received a handwritten note from Paul warning him that the videos depicting the rape and torture of two teenage victims may first appear to be irrelevant. The letter also contained a sketch of where the videos were hidden in the home he shared with Carla. It also warned Murray not to watch the tapes at the moment, even though they would need to be viewed in the future. After 12 days, Paul instructed his lawyer to view the tapes, but it is not known whether he did so. These instructions from his client would then set off a three-year legal battle. After Paul was charged in May 1993, he wrote a note to Murray, leading him to tapes that authorities missed in a three-month search of the couple's home. In the note, Paul instructed the lawyer to use the code words, how about those J's, if he found the tapes, and how about those leaves, if he was unsuccessful. Murray held on to the tapes for 17 months before handing them over to authorities and resigning from the case. It was later determined that if the Crown had these tapes, Carla's plea deal and testimony would not have been necessary. This led the prosecution to determine that Murray attempted to obstruct justice by hiding these tapes for 17 months. Ken Murray would later testify that he felt a duty to Paul to retrieve, keep, and use these tapes to support a defense theory that Carla was a Black Widow killer. The defense team had carefully thought out a Black Widow defense for Paul before they had even seen the videos. He claimed that after viewing the tapes, Carla was a completely different person from what she was claiming to be. He furthered that all the videos were consistent with Paul's claims that Carla was a liar and very likely a killer. Murray then described how he quit as Paul's lawyer when he planned to take the stand and lie. He stated he was not going to support perjury and would later resign from the case. Even so, some interesting details in the minds of the criminals had surfaced. Murray told the court that not long after Kristen French's murder, Carla went to a spiritualist for advice on how to exercise the noises, bangings, and voices that were coming from the basement where Leslie Maffey's body had been dismembered. Probably the most damning evidence against Carla was later revealed during Murray's trial in April and read from a detailed transcript of the rape videos. 
In the video, Carla is said to have reached for a dark green bottle known to contain the animal tranquilizer and soaked a rag with it. She then placed it against Jane Doe's mouth and nose. Carla was then described as smiling, waving, blowing kisses, and licking her lips for the camera before sexually assaulting the girl. The unsettling scene was read from a police transcript, which was used to strengthen Murray's assertion that Paul kept these videos from prosecutors because it suggested Carla was as likely the schoolgirl killer. The reading of the transcript far surpassed any of the audio that was played at Paul's trial. Murray's lawyer continued to read details of the fatal drug rape of Tammy Homoka, which Carla and Paul taped. Other footage taken only two weeks after Tammy's murder depicted Carla pretending to be her dead sister while having sex with Paul. The sections of the transcript depicting the rapes of Mahaffey and French were not read into the court record because a publication ban protected them. It was so disturbing that the mothers of the girls who had been in attendance, left the courtroom. While this reaction from family is to be expected, because it is very hard to hear everything your loved one endured in a case such as this, everyone felt the effects of what these girls encountered. The lawyer broke down mid-sentence while reading the transcript and asked for a break. Superior Court Justice Patrick Gravely was also affected by what he was hearing and ordered an early lunch recess as well as an extended afternoon break. It was so traumatic that even the journalists who had seen or heard the tapes either left the courtroom or stopped taking notes to bury their heads in their hands. In June 2007, Ken Murray was acquitted. In early May 2000, Carla's bid to gain prison passes to attend a halfway house in Montreal received a boost when the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry's Societies lent their support and wished Carla every success in her federal court bid. Lawyers for the victims' families asked that Carla not be released on parole in July 2001, but should have to go before the National Parole Board as a dangerous inmate who should be held for the full 12-year sentence. But apparently one of the reasons Carla's bid to attend this halfway house was because of her girlfriend. This girlfriend was said to have kept Carla's identity a secret from her family, only referring to her as Jessica, and expressed her intent on living with Carla after she was released. When Joliet Prison authorities were reviewing Carla's prison conduct to determine if she should be kept for another four years, a Montreal paper published a series of party photos of her. Many of the photos showed Carla and another inmate modeling black cocktail dresses for other inmates at a birthday party. Joliet was then described as an adult daycare center that pampered inmates. After this, Carla was moved to the Regional Psychiatric Center, a maximum security Saskatchewan penitentiary, to undergo a 45 to 60 day psychiatric assessment. 
Carla apparently did not take the news very well. As it was reported, she started kicking and screaming in protest. Her being moved gave some the idea that she would be held in prison for at least another four years. Because she was taken from the lenient Juliet facility and placed into maximum security, Carla refused to cooperate with doctors. She refused to participate in any psychiatric testing, which gave authorities no choice but to make her stay behind bars for another four more years. While Carla was making matters worse for herself, Paul lost his second appeal for a new trial. This decision by the High Court made it apparent that Paul would never be released from prison. He was housed in one of Canada's toughest maximum security facilities, being locked up in a tiny cell for 23 hours a day. In 2013, he was moved to another maximum security prison called Millhaven Institution before being placed in La Macaza Institution in 2023. By the end of 2000, Carla's lawyer stated that his client feared she would be killed by vigilantes when she was released from prison. Carla continuously received death threats and in February 2001, her lawyer found an internet death pool that allegedly took bets on when Homoka would be killed. The threats against her came at a time when two out of three psychiatrists recommended that Carla remain in prison until her sentence was complete in 2005 because they felt she was too dangerous to be released. But all the while, Carla continued to try her best to be sent back to Joliet instead of being transferred to maximum security facilities, which never amounted to anything. All of the requests made were denied. Carla spent 12 years in prison, and in July 2005, one of Canada's most notorious sex killers was released from prison. A day that all of her surviving victims and victims' families dreaded. Many Canadians believed that it would only be a matter of time before she began killing again. Carla's attorneys and some psychologists disagreed with this sentiment, claiming that her actions were nothing more than a reaction to her then-husband's abuse. Still though, to the majority, the rape tapes depicted an entirely different scenario to those who saw them, feeling as though Carla appeared to be an equal and willing accomplice to the crimes. Canadian citizens demanded restrictions be placed on Carla's freedom. In response, prosecutors asked the Quebec Superior Court for Carla's movements to be closely monitored following her release and for her to submit to a DNA test so her genetic samples could be kept on file in a criminal database. The court sided with prosecutors, ordering Carla's movements to be heavily monitored. She will have to continually inform authorities of her whereabouts, undergo psychological therapy, refrain from contacting any of the victim's family members as well as her ex-husband, and she is not allowed to work with children under the age of 16. In anticipation of her new life with her criminal activities behind her, she opted to change her name to Carla Teal. It is also reported that she went by Leanne Till. She cut her hair, 
dyed it black, and lost weight. However, she still received a backlash from the community as no one wanted her to live in their neighborhood. The legal battles continued as Carla's lawyers called the restrictions placed on her unconstitutional. Not long after her release, Carla was hired at a hardware store where the manager would secretly record her and give the recording to authorities. Allegedly, these tapes confirmed Carla violated her release restrictions. She was ordered not to associate with other known criminals, but she was apparently in a relationship with a murderer at the time who was sent to prison. Then Carla received a call from a Quebec justice minister who interviewed her on the hardware store manager's allegations. While in the interview, she finds out that she had been deceived by radio talk show hosts. She quit her job and moved elsewhere. It seemed every time Carla tried to lead a quiet life away from the media frenzy, they would always mysteriously find her. Today, Carla is a 53-year-old and a mother to three children. Her husband, Terry Bordelais, and she intend to live in Quebec. Her name was changed to Leanne Bordelais, but no matter what she does, she can never remain hidden from the press. It was also stated that in 2007, when Carla gave birth to her first child, several of the nurses refused to take care of Carla before she gave birth. But even to this day, she remains scrutinized by many, which rightfully so. Parents were concerned when her children were attending the same school as their own. But it was not so much Carla's children they were concerned about, as it was with just her. Many feel that she can never fully pay her debt to society. Because of the plea deal she cut while evidence was withheld, she can continue living a life where she can get married and have a family. While it's not a glamorous life because of the constant media frenzy, she still gets to do and experience things that three girls cannot because of her and her ex-husband. Which, if I am being completely honest, she made very questionable decisions if she wanted to be portrayed as a victim of abuse. But that's just my opinion. Do you think Canadian prosecutors jumped the gun on the plea deal for Carla? Do you think her actions was because she was a victim of Paul? Or was she just a willing participant? Thank you for listening and your support. As always, stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!